1544, there was a, uh, an English queen named Jane. She was either 16 or 17 years old. And Jane was queen for about nine days, and then she was beheaded by the next queen, uh, Queen Mary. Uh, and I think that's where we get the term Bloody Mary. Some of you guys are better at history than me. Um, but Jane was only a kid. I mean, she was 16 or 17 years old. Um, it wasn't her fault that she was queen. It wasn't her fault that she was beheaded. Her father um, wanted a Protestant, uh, a reformed Protestant on the throne of England as queen. And so he, he did some shuffling in his will before he died. And he appointed uh, one of his daughters, not the others, who might have been ahead of her, uh, for the, the throne. And of course, she was queen for a few days and then politics as they were, they quickly changed forces real, allied against her and she was beheaded. And um, in the process of her coming to be executed, um, people sent her appeals to repent of her Protestantism. And um, it's interesting, one of the uh, people that was sent was the new queens, or queen-to-be's um, clergy, uh, probably a priest. She sent this gentleman to appeal to her. And um, what Jane said in essence is, this isn't worth my soul. Um, I'm not going to give up on the truth about how people are saved, and I'm not going to give up on the truth of this doctrine that we're going to study today, uh, because it's more important to me than what I can get from this earth. It's so important to me, essentially, she said, I'm just not going to recant. And so they cut off her head. Uh, she actually made friends with the clergyman who was appealing to her, and she asked him to accompany her to the scaffold, which he became a friend of hers, and he was willing to. So it was, they had this very strong religious disagreement, and yet uh, they found some common uh, humanity with each other, and he walked her to the scaffold, and uh, she said as she was brought to the scaffolding, into the Lord's hands I commit my spirit. Jane decided that what we're going to study today was so important that it was worth her life. And, and I agree with Jane. And I don't know if I would have the courage. Obviously, it would take God to implant that courage in me to go to my death if I was being called to recant how a person like me can be saved by God. And, but, but as we go into this message today, I am hoping and I'm praying that what will grow in you is a delight and a just a, a thirst and a hunger to understand and to rejoice and to live in the freedom of how God says we're saved. Because if we get it, and the, well, I, I shouldn't make it a binary thing. I think that people who are born again, all of them get this to some degree and we can grow in getting it. Um, but, but I just want us to get it better and better and better because I just think it's gonna be so good for us. As people, it's going to be so good for us as a church. It's going to be so good for our friendships. It's going to be so good for our, uh, our families and our relationships within our families. Um, but most importantly, in feeding all that and pouring into all that, it's going to be so good for our relationship with God to get this understanding more and more and more and better and better and better. And I know for, for most of you, probably, this is not going to be new news. It certainly will be for the younger people. It probably will be. It will, a lot of it will be new. But for some of you seasoned believers, you're going to be like, yes, 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 I know this stuff. But you know what's true about stuff that we know? It, it, it's not that we know it. it can, we can know it for 30, 40, 50 years. What we need is for the old stuff we know to be alive in us, right? 
Like that's what we need. We need the old truths of God that we've known since we were six maybe to really become living in us. Right? We need the old truths of God that we've known since we were six years old to really become alive in us, to really feed us again. That's what we need. And so to that end, I will preach this morning and ask God for his help. Lord, would you please anoint your word? Would you please protect me from error for your sake and for the sake of your hearers? And we pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. In the previous chapter and chapters, Paul has told us of God's great solution to our terrible predicament. Terrible predicament we spoke about a lot. God's just wrath is over mankind because of the way we have treated him and as a result, because of the way we treat one another. He is a God of love who calls us to love him and calls us to love one another. And we haven't and we don't. And so his justice is sure. And he says to humanity, I'm not pleased with you. And I will not, I will not allow injustice to continue against my holy law of love. And our destiny under God's justice, Paul tells us, and Jesus has told us, is the punishment of eternal condemnation away from his goodness and glory. But God in the person of his son has solved this dilemma for us. He takes the punishment that we deserve and by the atoning blood of his son, God declares his people's record paid and their charges thrown out of his courtroom. Instead of being condemned before God, Jesus' work on the cross makes it possible for God to declare his people righteous in his sight. Another way to say this is that they are justified. In fact, please recall that those phrases mean the same thing as we keep talking about this. When you hear justified by God, you can also hear declared righteous by God. When you hear justified by God, you can hear declared righteous by God. And remember our shorthand for justified. Just as, we, just as if we'd never sinned. Or another way to put it is just as if we'd always obeyed. Those are the shorthands for this crucial doctrine, the doctrine called justification. How people are declared righteous before God. That is the theme of the passage this morning. And as I said before, there is not a more important theme for anyone. I really believe that. Martin Luther said of the doctrine of justification, he said, this doctrine is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. Without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Luther wasn't saying that other doctrines aren't critical and crucial. He was saying that the truth of how we're justified before God is so foundational that it holds up everything else we experience. If we lose this truth, everything else falls down too. See, if, if we're not justified before God, if we stand before him in a state of condemnation for our sins, it doesn't matter if we're rich and happy and trouble-free or going around trying to do good for these brief years on earth. Nothing eternally good will come to us. But alternatively, if we are justified by God, if he counts us righteous in his presence, nothing lastingly bad can ever happen to us. 
not lastingly, because Christ bore our condemnation, there's none left for us. And God is lawfully bound, so to speak. Though just as much as he would say he's lawfully bound, he would also say he's lawfully free because it's his desire to do what he longs to do, which is to lavish mercy and grace and kindness on us all our days and into eternity. This is why he justifies people so that he can do what he always wants to do, which is to pour out his goodness on them forever, regardless of their performance or their merit. So this is what is at stake in justification. Everything else that happens to you in your experience with God hangs on whether you're justified or not. It is the front door of God's house, so to speak. And if the front door of God's house is locked and you don't have a key, it doesn't matter how safe and warm and full of good food the inside of the house is. You're on the outside of it. So justification is like a key that opens the door. It's not the only doctrine that's needed or necessary or important, but it's the key that opens the door to our experience, to the whole storehouse of God's grace. And so here in Romans, Paul is urgently concerned to make it very clear how we receive justification, this decree of righteous before God. This is the crucial question he's dealing with right now. If God justifies us through Christ, how do we receive that justification? How does a person get it for themselves? Do we earn it? Do we obey our way back to God? Do we commit to never sin again and always obey? Paul is arguing that we receive justification by doing the only thing we can do, so to speak, that isn't doing. (laughs) He is arguing that we receive it by faith alone as a gift from God. That acknowledging we are sinners in need of God's mercy, we simply receive his justification as a gift by faith. Now, Paul is writing to a church that's very familiar with religion. They're very familiar with religious duties and religious devotion. And he knows that this is probably a shock and a struggle to some, if not all, the people. Justification declared righteous just by believing God for it? They know the Bible. They know the commandments. They see how the devout and holy people of God lived. And he knows they may be very hesitant to believe what he's saying. So Paul does something very wise and very simple. He takes two of the most revered people in the Bible. Abraham, the father of all of God's chosen people, and David, their greatest king. And he's going to show that despite how godly these men might have appeared to be and seemed, they were both justified by God the same way that all people must be justified by God, not by their works, but by faith, by trusting God for it. 
by depending on him for the free gift that he longs to give us. And let's read, starting in Romans 4, verse 1, we'll read through verse 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Abraham's got a spotlight on him right now. And Paul wants to argue his case using this father of all of God's people from an earthly perspective. So verse one, he asks, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Abraham was known among Bible believers as a holy man, as a devout man, Many considered him the most devout and holy of all of God's people. And surely this man could be justified by God, by his heart and his righteous living. Surely it was godliness in Abraham that made him acceptable to God. Surely Abraham could boast in his goodness. No, Paul says, not before God. That's not it at all. And then as if shining a light on a shocking truth that's been right in front of God's people the whole time since the beginning of Genesis 12 and 15 and 22, Paul drops this verse bomb on them. Right from Genesis 15, 6. It's been there the whole time for centuries upon centuries of God's Word to his people. Verse three of Romans four. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Theologian James Boyce says this is arguably the most important verse in the Bible about salvation. Genesis 15, six and repeated here in Romans four, three. This is the first reference in the whole Bible that mentions faith. Genesis 15, 6. It's the first reference in the whole Bible to being made made right by God. The first reference in the whole Bible about how people are declared righteous before God. And what it is telling us is that before God gave the Ten Commandments to his people, before any of his laws were given, before the temple sacrifices were set up, before Abraham was even circumcised, which was the foundational religious sign of being, well, for us, it would be probably being saved, 
or being a, a person in God's kingdom. It's like baptism for Christians. Before any of that, before Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac to God in reverent hope, before any of this, what happens? Here's what happens. God comes to Abraham. Listen, he just comes to Abraham and he says the most glorious and wonderful things. He makes these promises to this man. He tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your reward. I'm going to be your portion and your shield. Essentially, God promises Abraham himself. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give myself to you. And then God promises to bless Abraham, to give him a home and descendants, and even to bless all the families of the whole earth through him. And by extension, through a descendant of his. Now we know that is Jesus. But this is what God does. He just comes to Abraham and makes these promises to Abraham. And when Abraham heard these glorious promises, Abraham took God at his word. He believed that what God said he would do for him, he would do. That's what he did. And then God responds with something incredible. He says he justifies Abraham because Abraham believed his good promises. He justifies him. Abraham may not have known it was happening at the time, but what God did was to remove any accusation, any merit, any, any condemnation on Abraham for his sins from Abraham forever. God declares Abraham righteous in his holy courtroom. And now God is free, so to speak, or bound, if we want to put it that way, lawfully to fulfill all these promises that he made to Abraham because there's no sin in the way between him and God, between him and God anymore. And the text just says, Abraham believed God. It was counted him as righteousness. Now this, this word counted, it's, it's legal accounting language. It's like bookkeeping language. It means that God put something into Abraham's account that Abraham did not have himself. And in this case, it's a status of righteous. If we think of accounting, we might say that if Abraham had a, like a moral ledger sheet before God, like a bank statement before God, it would have said something like, Abraham, your sin debt before me requires the payment and the forfeiture of your life. It requires your spiritual death. But God changed the ledger sheet completely and said, Abraham, since you believed my good promises to you, I will consider your entire debt paid in full. Abraham didn't understand this, but on the basis of the blood of my son, I will wipe it away. You are now justified and accounted as righteous in my holy courtroom. This is what happened when Abraham believed God's promise to him. When he simply took God at his word, he was justified declared righteous before God. And listen, it's important to see that this does not mean that Abraham suddenly became righteous in his character and his actions. Now, yes, a changed heart will flow sooner or later. Changed life will come from being justified because God gives his spirit to us when we're justified. 
and our lives start to change outwardly because something inside has happened. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what Genesis 15 is saying. Counted as righteous means, as one theologian puts it, to account to him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. See, folks, this is so crucial to get. This is about God doing something, to put it in colloquial terms, crazy. Though it's not crazy. I'm just trying to shake you up this morning. (laughs) This is about God accounting people who are sinners as if they were completely righteous. And this is supported in the next two verses when Paul makes another stunning statement to elaborate here. Verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the wicked, his faith is counted as righteousness. What in the world? There may not be a clearer statement on what justification is and what justification is not in the whole Bible. See, if God justifies you, if he declares you righteous because it's your due, because it's what he owes you, that means you're a righteous person in yourself, in yourself. That's the only reason why he would justify you because you deserve it. It would be because you deserved it. And that's the only reason why he would proclaim you righteous because you deserve it. Because you really were in your heart. But what this verse is saying is that he declares you righteous not because you earned it. He says you're wicked. And he declares you righteous. This is what God does. And I use the word wicked because that's what I grew up with in my NIV when I was saved in 1992. Um, For years, that was the verse, the way that 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 translation, your Bibles will say ungodly. But if you look at the Greek, (laughs) what does ungodly mean? And you you pull up Mounts' lexicon, it says wicked. And that makes a lot more room for me. Because I, I just, I, I need that. I need the tent of God's, I need the, 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 yeah. I need the tent poles of God's salvation to include wicked and not just ungodly. Because I just feel a lot safer when it says wicked are allowed in here. I feel like there's a lot more surety about whether or not a person like me can make it in there. When it says, we'll take wicked people. And that's a fine translation, and I highly recommend it. The wicked or the ungodly man or woman looks in faith to God for mercy, and God says, I will indeed be merciful to you. As a free gift, I will declare you righteous in my courtroom, if you will believe me for it. And Paul tells us that this is how Abraham was justified before God. He received it as a gift by faith. Well, some people reading this, church, this letter in Rome might have said, 
come on, Paul, we read the Bible. We, we've seen Abraham. Yeah, he did a few bad things. He treated his wife pretty poorly at times with Pharaoh because he was scared. But you helped him out with that. And Sarah pulled through. She gave him what for a couple of times. I mean, he's a pretty decent guy. Look what he did for his nephew, Lot. He was brave. He trusted you with Isaac's life. He was a pretty good man. Well, Paul would say, well, if he was, why did God have to justify him as a free gift? Why couldn't God justify him for his righteous works? I mean, case closed. If you believe Genesis 15, 6. And if you're a devout religious Jew, you, you would believe Genesis 15, 6. But if we're still not convinced, let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, just as David... Paul's going to bring David in now to testify. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Listen, if you don't know much about King David's life, know this. And you might be mad at God after this. David stole another man's wife in his lust. He just looked at her from his rooftop, watched her bathing, and he took her into his home. He, he impregnated her. And then to cover up the scandal before anyone could find out about it, he literally conspired with his general to make sure that this woman's husband, her lawful husband, a brave soldier who was completely committed to David as his king, and honored and loved David as his king, a faithful servant, David conspired with his general to make sure that faithful soldier was slaughtered by the enemy. Make sure you put him in the front so he'll die. David conspired with, I think it was Joab. So adultery, King David. Corruption, conspiracy to commit murder, King David. Betrayal, King David. Murder, King David. And yet here he is singing this song about God counting him righteous apart from his works. Verse seven, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now we do see that David repented. He turned to God and said, have mercy on me. But we're not looking at a man who deserved that mercy. Ask Uriah's father and mother whether David was a wonderful man. They were crying out for justice, I'm sure, if they'd known what had happened. But God said, I'm going to be merciful. Your sins are against me in the ultimate reality. They're really against me. Your eye belonged to me. Bathsheba belonged to me. Your eye's whole family belonged to me. What you've done to Uriah and Bathsheba, you've really done to me. That's what David confesses in Psalm 51 against you and you only have I sinned. Of course, all our sins are ultimately really against God. When I sin against Jen, I'm sinning against God. He made her, he gave her to me. It doesn't mean that she doesn't count. It means that the sin is much bigger and much worse than I understand. But David says, Lord, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin against him. Look at verse eight. See that word count? That's a counting language again. 
David had sin. He was, sin. he was a sinner, but God did not account his sin against him. He did not keep it on his record. Conversely, David was not righteous. God accounted righteousness to him. God put it on his record. And the only way David receives that righteousness on his record was by receiving God's promise to give it to him. A gift received by faith. Trusting God for it. So neither Abraham nor David could trust in their own righteousness. And brothers and sisters, neither can we. We must trust God himself to give us righteousness as a free gift. From beginning to end. From the first time we met Jesus to the time we close our eyes and go to him face to face. This is what we must trust in. This is how we're saved. God justifies us. He counts us righteous as a gift, even though we're not. Because he counted Jesus as a sinner, even though he was not. This is what it means to be justified. In his commentary in Galatians, Tim Keller says, this is, I love this phrase. This is a beautiful phrase. By the way, Tim Keller writes so well and preaches so well about this doctrine. If you get his app, uh, I can't remember what it's called. I can show it to you on my phone. He has a series on Romans. It's a beautiful series. So I want to commend it to you. Um, but, but Tim Keller has also a commentary on, Galatians called, or, or on, on Romans called Romans for You. It's a great little book. I commend that to you as well. And he says that, that saving faith is a matter of a trust transfer. That's the phrase he uses. It's a trust transfer. I love that phrase. It's a trust transfer. We stop trusting in our ability to be righteous before God. We stop trusting in our ability to earn salvation through our obedience. And we transfer our trust to God's promise to count us righteous because of Jesus and what he's done. Uh, that this, of course, this doesn't mean that we stop trying to live righteous lives. It doesn't mean that we stop acknowledging our sin before God. We are to do that. But it does mean crucially, it does mean crucially that we stop and resist trusting in our righteous lives. We stop trusting in our obedience to justify us before God. Instead, we make a trust transfer to God who declares us righteous on the basis of what his son has done for us. We look at righteous Jesus on that cross for unrighteous us. We look at righteous Jesus bearing all our sins and we say to God, and this honors him, we say, okay, that's a, that's a good price. <laughs> that's a fair price. That Jesus is well worth it. He is enough to justify me before you. He covers it and then some. He is my righteousness now, not me. See how that honors the worth of Jesus? See how that puts our boast in God and not in ourselves? We say, oh, he's enough to cover me completely. He's that good. One person put it this way, or many people have at this point, I'm sure. <laughs> we are great sin sinners. But Jesus is a great savior and he is much better at saving than we are at sinning. And when we see this, when we embrace this, 
We're no longer going to put our hope or our trust or our boast, as we talked about last week, in what we can do or keep from doing to earn our righteousness before God. When we see this, when we embrace this, we're set free from that. Of course, not perfectly in this life, but progressively we're meant to be set free. And God gives us his spirit to keep that freeing project going to keep freeing us and keep freeing us and keep reminding us and keep building this truth in us that we're free because it means everything. Listen, justification by faith received as a gift and not by our obedience, it means that we don't have to lie in crushing despair because of what we did or do wrong or should have done right. It means we don't have to buckle under condemnation or be filled with anxiety all the time about our performance. Because we've transferred our trust, we've moved our trust over to Jesus, who he is for us and what he's done for us is what counts now in God's throne. Our sins are covered and we learn and heal from them instead of being destroyed by them. We don't have to stress over pleasing others so that we can feel okay inside. Listen, here's just an example. This, this morning, um, I, knew, I knew I was going to be late for practice earlier. And Rob Kelly is a guy who works hard to lead well. And he leads well. Rob has a gift of leadership. And uh, when he leads worship, you, you will note often, I'm not saying that this is... Um, I'm not trying to glorify Rob, but it's just true. Like you will note a level of excellence in preparation if you've been in the band and you've been playing with the band because Rob is good at leading and he's a good musician and he takes leading worship really seriously. And, and I, it, it makes me nervous and anxious to disappoint Rob. And so in the morning, I knew that things were, were going in the wrong direction in terms of getting to be on time because Rob sees being on time as an evidence of care and respect to the Lord and to his people. So I told Rob, Rob, I'm sorry, but we're going to be late. But my instinct initially was not to honor Rob and be kind to him. My initial instinct was that I didn't want to get in trouble with Rob and feel bad before Rob because I fear Rob. <laughs> and do you know how much... Love was involved in that little moment right there. Guess how much love? Nothing. It's not about love, loving Rob. It's about me. It's about protecting my butt. <laughs> I don't want to deal with feeling bad and shame. See, I can't love Rob very well when I'm consumed with protecting myself. And I talk to myself about this. I was like, I'm, I'm, I just preached this to myself last night, you know? And I took a step back and I was like, Rob, I'm gonna be late. But you know what? Increasingly, I felt this is good. This is space for me to love my brother. <laughs> like, I care about him more when I'm worried about protecting myself less. So God is saying, you don't have to stress about pleasing others so that you can feel okay inside. You don't have to be a slave. I'm not saying Rob makes me a slave at all, but there are some really bad relationships we get into where people are more than willing to make us their slaves, right? In one way or another, they're gonna put their foot down and 
whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our job places, and we begin to feed off that and we begin to enter into that transaction of slavery with these people in our lives. And we do it to others below us because we feel it from them. And justification by faith, it says enough of that. Enough of that. You don't have to live for others' pleasure in the wrong way. Because you don't have to stress with being all that they need you to be. And the fear of what you are if you're not all that they need you to be. Because you've moved your trust over to Jesus. He is what makes you enough before God. And God's opinion is the only opinion that matters in the final analysis. So we don't have to be slaves to impressing others. And what that does is, it, in fact, it finally frees us up more and more to love them because we need their validation less. We have less and less a temptation also to look down on others when they aren't as righteous as we think they should be because we're more and more aware that our own righteousness doesn't come from us. We just get mercy and we get mercy and we get mercy. And the more you're aware of getting mercy, the easier it is to want to be a mercy giver. The more we see ourselves as secure recipients of God's mercy that others need, not better than others, the less we'll be tempted to judge others, the more we can love them. And we can also more and more be our, ourselves in our weaknesses and in our failures. When we accept that we're accepted in God's courtroom as a gift through Jesus, we're more confident that we can be our authentic selves, not put on airs and not try to press it or hide. We can even take criticism with calmer hearts, not saying it's right or it's wrong. But we can take it with calmer hearts and, an and analyze it more carefully and thoughtfully because we know God isn't going to judge us whether that criticism is right or not. He's not going to abandon us for failing. Our righteousness is secure in Jesus. Even trials look different when we hold on to this truth of this doctrine. See, because God has justified us already, there's no condemnation for us. All of God's trials and troubles, they become tools that he's using to lavish mercy on us and help us grow as opposed to being circumstances that could destroy us. So we can say with Paul, if God's for me, who can be against me? Who will separate me from God's love? Christ has already been condemned in my place. Who can condemn me now? Well, the answer is no one can. Now listen, I know, I might even know better than most people in here. I don't know, but maybe, I'd put a maybe on there. <laughs> That it, that it can be a constantly difficult endeavor to keep our trust in Jesus for our justification and not ourselves. I have a lot of legalism in me and not a lot of love in me. That's just the reality of who I am, I think. But that's okay because I'm justified by God. I can admit it, that I think I'm addicted to legalism. And I think many of us war and battle with this. We slip into self-righteous boasting when we condemn others or we slip into despairing so easily when we condemn ourselves. And that's indicative of where our hope is. It's in ourselves, how we measure up. And if we measure up a lot in our minds, we'll be, hope, we'll be confident. If we measure up a little bit, we'll be shattered. But that tells us where our hope is. It's in ourselves. 
And we struggle with this really, really easily all the time. Martin Luther said, every week I preach justification by faith alone because every week my people forget it. But when we come back to it, when we embrace it again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, if God's spirit's at work in that, it can't help but start to feel healing. You can't help but start to feel his healing. We sense a deeper peace with him, a healthier quietness in our souls. We're even more excited to invite others to come to know Jesus because we're more excited about who he is. So listen, just a really quick thought for you application-wise. Just if this message touches you, if you feel like, yeah, I can raise my hand, I need this more deeply, just get into these truths. Get into Romans 3 and 4. Keep praying over this passage, these passages. Keep studying it. Listen to messages on them from, from Tim Keller. Ask me for books. I got other books. Tim Keller, Jerry Bridges, people who really, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, preach this doctrine with a lot of care and compassion and clarity. But pray over these passages. Read the whole book of Galatians. It's all about this. There are little tiny books I can put you in touch with that will help you study a book like that. Spend time in it. Treasure it. Embrace it. Listen to Pastor Albert's messages on it too. And feel free to bring your critiques. I can listen to your critiques from a place of security in Christ, <laughs> in a calmer heart.